Okay, cool sciencey thing today. This is, may not be a surprise to you, some of you folks who are into this stuff, but apparently dinosaurs had feathers, and this I, I still think this is cool. And not maybe not all of them, but they're figuring out that at least um, a lot, of, at least a lot of, if not all of, the theropods, which are like T. Rex and several, I guess some. These are actual photographs. <laughs> so this is a two Tyrannus, and about 30 feet long, so big guy, related to the T-Rex, as you can tell. But the, the, the feathers that they, they had, they, they can tell from, like, um, a, a lot of the fossils we're getting, having some, some actual fossils have, like, feather imprints on these big guys. They found an entire two Tyrannus skeleton, or a fossil, like the whole thing, along with, um, they could see the, the points where the feathers went into the skin, and some of the feathers they can actually tell the color of because we get, on, get an electron microscope down to the, the, the tiny, tiny scale. And the, the different colors uh, have different angles in the follicles and stuff like that. So this, this guy, the Cenosobropteryx, um, they're pretty sure this is actually what it looked like, the colors and everything. had a banded tail. And it wasn't like full-on feathers for the most part. Like we think of like a bird is more like like if if like a bird has like a, a bird for that has like a spine and then like the fringes are on the other on the sides is more like the, just the fringes. So a like an emu is a good example of a modern day dinosaur essentially that and the kind of feathers that it would have. Um, just a few others. Not this one's about four feet long, and they start looking a lot like birds but, but without beaks. Like this, this guy's the size of a crow, and they they could actually tell that it was a rainbow uh, crest. It's fascinating this like stuff that science can figure out these days. This one's really scary looking, but it's like the size of a German Shepherd, which is still scary. And so they've also actually found this is a, a dinosaur tail in amber, and you can actually see the feathers on the tail still. They can tell from the skeletal structure of the tail that it's actually a dinosaur, not a bird, and the, but it has the feathers. So it's fascinating. And maybe the T-Rex had feathers too. They're not sure. They haven't found proof that it did, but all the other related dinosaurs did. Um, but it, it's, it's at the same time, it makes them look scarier and more cuddly. I don't know. <laughs> so so it's, I think it's fascinating. The, the things that... Just when you thought uh, uh, Jurassic Park, Jurassic Park was actually at the time like groundbreaking with the fact that they had T-Rex not standing straight up, that was like leaning over, kind of like that. But now it's like, yeah, it's old school. There's no feathers. <laughs> anyway, cool stuff. So last week we we finished up looking at the days of creation um, from the uh, for the the interpretation we're taking in this class is like the functional functional interpretation of uh, the functional creation perspective. Um, and I, I kind of hate to keep using the word functional because it's not all about functions. It's really coming down to purpose. The functions provided the purpose. And so for some things, God just assigned purpose to things, not like, quote, unquote, functions the way we think of like a mechanical device functioning. 
So really get what's really what it really is is like a teleological, ontological view of Genesis one, but nobody wants to say those words. Functional creation is will work for us, but you can you get the point. The the point the the core point being that the author and the recipients of this text originally wouldn't have thought of this as a story about the physical creation of the universe. They would have assumed, of course, that God did that stuff, that God is the creator of all things physical, but the way that their, uh, the cultures were at the time, even the way the, the text itself is structured, it's all focused on the purposes that the things were given by God, which to me has a much more spiritual significance to my, in my life, realizing that, that the first story in the Bible is about God giving purpose to things and giving us a purpose. And instead of just like, here, here's a, here's a historical account of something that happened. So we talked uh, about how what is, what's really trying to be described in these days of creation is how God provides things for us. He provides the basis for time, the structure for weather, the means for food and agriculture, um, ways to mark time for us, animals to populate the environment, and the animals we need specifically, and, and giving a purpose for humanity. And that purpose, it's kind of this, this threefold um, purpose of this story of the six days of creation, comes down to, it's about giving humanity our identity as, as a species, how we are representatives of God on the earth. That's our, that's our job. We are to be his representatives. That's what it means in this passage, to be his, made in his image. We are given his image and to do his work. And it's also to establish a relationship with God because this whole story is talking about how he cares so much for us that he organized the universe to be able to serve the needs that we have. And um, also to define our relationship to his creation as the caretakers of his creation and as far as like him being very clear about your job is to take care of things also he has Adam in chapter 2 uh, name all the animals which is a very core piece of creation uh, stories back at the time is naming things because if you name it it's yours and you have to, you're, you're responsible for it so what it's saying is that we're that one of the aspects of representative representing God on the earth is to take care of the environment so it's, it's a, to me it's a very core piece of our faith and what God has given us to do is to, to take care of what he has given us in a very real way. So before we get into today's lesson, um, I have a question. What is the most important day of the creation week? Christy's not allowed to answer. The seventh day. Why the seventh day? Okay, because he because he rested after all the work. Okay, any other thoughts on that? Yeah, he he it is it is in Genesis two actually. Yeah, so the six days end at the end of chapter one, and then the seventh day is in chapter two. Yeah, he he declared it holy. So, we're going to talk today about that about day seven, why he declared it holy, how that may be or may not be confusing, and what that means. Um. So once again, I will do my best to get to the end of it because the end of this lesson is really where I want to get to. <laughs> and I, I tend to talk too much at the beginning. So 
Let's, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to chapter 2 of Genesis, because um, I have the text up here, but um, I'm going to be moving beyond that, but referring back to it, so it helps to, it might help to have it up. <coughs> so here's, here's what uh, Genesis 2, 1 through 4 says. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from his, all his work that he had done in creation. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. <clears throat> so, and I can get into you individually why I included that last verse, which is, Conclusion, not an introduction, but that's a that's a whole other Hebrew thing. We'll get into some other time. But um, so, I this every my entire life this this day has befuddled me a little bit, and I always had questions about this day. Um, what? Well, going back to the um, the text, just just what's going on here? Just plain reading of the text. What would you say is happening here? What does it say has happened? So the earth, everything's created, right? God's done doing the creating. And what's he do? He rests. So, yeah, I'm not looking for anything super deep or anything right now. Just what, plain, what's it say? God finished work. He, 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 he rested. And he, and he blessed the day as holy. So what are some questions that this may bring up in your mind? What what happened to day eight? Yeah, what did he do on day eight? Or nine? Or twelve thousand? Or okay, that's a good question. Why did God need a rest? Yeah, like what, why is he resting? Did he need to? That always confused me as a kid in Bible class, learning the story. It's like God rested. It's like I thought he was all powerful. Why did he need to rest? So that was huh. Yeah, to set a precedent as an example, okay. What? And you need to take a nap. <laughs> that's what resting is. God rested, you take a nap. That's, that's good. Parents are allowed to use that. Okay, um, another question I had is, why is this day made holy? Of all the days of creation... Why is the day that God took a break the holy day? Never made sense to me. Maybe I'm the only one. Another question is, what does this have to do with creation? If this text is about making the earth, like I've always thought, why, there's no creating at all happening on this day. Nothing. It's just God taking a break and calling something holy. So... May not be a surprise to you, but we're going to look at this in a different way today. Making a statement, yeah. Seven days in the week, but they could have been six. Is this why we have seven, or were there seven already? Or I mean, all the questions, yeah. Like a coronation. Yeah. 
we'll, we'll definitely get to that exact same thing. I hadn't thought of it as a, that, way, that way, but yeah. He finished his work. He finished his work. So it's he Right. Somebody, uh, it's like when Jesus sat down on the right hand of God, he sat because of his death. Right. Yeah, and these are all absolutely valid things. Yeah, well, what I was always thinking as a kid is if he finished on day six, why didn't he just sit down on day six? Why did, it, why, did it take a t- why did it take an entire day of the week to say he took a break? You know what I mean? It seems like a big deal for not a big deal. Um, so... If you look at this as a, from a material perspective, it seems kind of tacked on, like extra, like it's like kind of like milking the time, just get an extra day out of things. Um, and I also, as a kid, I kind of thought that this seemed to be added on so, to give the Jews another rule to follow. You know, like because when you get into the Ten Commandments, which commandment is it? The Sabbath. Fourth. You get to the fourth commandment, and it's like. The only reason for the fourth commandment is that God rested too. It's like, eh. I have a lot of questions as a child, apparently. Um, so, materially doesn't make sense, but if you look at this from the perspective of people at the time and functionally and teleologically, it, it, it makes a lot more sense. So, like I said, when we look at this, we have these kinds of questions. But when they would have seen this, they would have understood the answers to these questions and, some, and the answers from some other stuff as well. And they would, I think when they got to day seven and read what happened, what God did, they would have immediately known what's going on with not just that day, but the entire six days. And they would have understood day eight as well and, and on and on from that. Um, because what, one thing that they would have realized when it says God rested is that they would have realized that this is a temple text. This is referring to a temple in some way, shape, or form. We'll get to why in a second. They would also realize that this, the day seven is the most important day and that the whole thing makes no sense without day seven. So you can have this, all this creation stuff, but without day seven, what's the point? So how would they have known this? Well, it comes down to the fact that God was resting. And what, what it comes down to for that is that they knew something, since we are not in a temple-type culture, like an ancient temple culture, they, they understood that a, a temple is there for a god to rest in. And the only place a god of any kind rests is in a temple. So if it says god, it, the god rested, where is he resting? In a temple of some sort. So it would have been a, a, a key from them. And that's basically the purpose for a temple. We, we sometimes think of temples as like a correlate, like the corollary would be a church building. Kind of, but kind of not. Because temples at the time were, in these ancient cultures, were, they were sacred space. They weren't a place for the, for the congregants to come and gather and like worship and stuff. There was worshiping that happened there, but it was mostly the priests, priests that did the worshiping. The, the, uh, people following that God were doing their own stuff outside the temple, but the temple itself was the place for the God to rest, and that's where his his throne was on the earth. And so, therefore, it was really important for an ancient culture. One of the first one of the things that they did whenever they went to some, a new place was to build a temple, 
because they wanted their God with them. And so that place, that temple was a sacred, holy place. And um, we, we see that a lot in, uh, in uh, the Old Testament as well. So if, if God is resting in a temple in chapter 1, there's no temple mentioned. Where is this temple? Huh? Yeah, it's it's yeah. So the universe is God's temple, and that's this is a different way of approaching this kind of an idea than any of the other ancient texts. They all have this idea that temple equals place that God rests or the deity rests, but this is the only one that has the idea that the cosmos is God's temple. Any guesses to why that would be? This is the first one that that way. Because it's the true one. What else? What what is different between Judaism and all the other religions? There's not competition. There's one God, right? So all the other all these other religions had many many gods. So if if the cosmos is is the God's temple, which God gets to have the cosmos? They can't. So they have to have lots of different temples on the earth. But God is like, I'm it. I'm not like these other small small G gods. I, I get the cosmos. And so he's saying that the entire thing belongs to him. And so another interesting aspect of this is that this, the creation of the cosmos in all these other ancient cultures, especially Egyptian, was directly tied to the creation of a temple. So a temple, like the... Crea- like the I described how uh, in all these functional descriptions of a the pre-created cosmos, there's always uh, like this uh, confused state. There was chaos. And often in that description of the chaotic state pre-creation was mentioned the fact that there was a, no temple for the God to live in. And it says there was no temple, there was no th- like earth or whatever, but it often started started with there was no temple. And so... These two things were very tied together anyway, but it's it's I think it's fascinating that God is the first one, that Yahweh is the first one to say, "Yeah, but I get the whole thing; it it's mine." Um. So even even knowing this, and knowing that the knowing that this is a temple, and the fact that there was no temple mentioned, that's, that's where you get to the fact that it is, it's the, the entire co- uh, cosmos. Um, so like, like I was saying, we see this idea reflected throughout the, the Old Testament, throughout, throughout the Bible, not just the Old Testament. Um, so this is a recreation of the tabernacle somewhere in Jerusalem, I'm not sure. Timnah, this is where this is. I'm not sure where that is in, in Israel, somewhere over there. But life-size recreation of the tabernacle. I think it would be cool to go see that. Um, this was the first temple built by the Jews. It wasn't a quote-unquote temple. That was Solomon's. This is essentially a movable temple. This is a place for God to be. Um, and what, what, does the tab, what does the word tabernacle mean? Anybody remember? Yeah, dwelling. It's a dwelling. It's like a tent. So even the name for the thing was talking about how God dwells there. And this, the symbolism, when you lo- start looking at to, into how this, this tabernacle was structured, um, 
God has God is very very specific on what this thing should look like and how it should be laid out how, like what kinds of uh, things are used for which posts which kind how how far these posters should be spaced out on and on and on and there's it's it's very very detailed you can find tons of uh, uh, layouts for this and diagrams for this online um, but this is this may have been what it looked like and you can see the American football field very important <laughs> and this compared to the size of the the uh, tabernacle just for scale so I, I want to show you guys some of the the, the correlation of the symbolism here that's just kind of kind of blew my mind a little bit maybe it's just me so the the, ta the tabernacle is laid out like this and the entrance was always to the east so when the sun rose it would shine into into the holy place or into the into the area and the first thing near the entrance was the uh, the altar the where the burnt offerings were where you put the you killed the cow or whatever that the lamb and you, you burned it there on the altar and then next to that it was a large wash basin and and the Solomon's temple was set up very much this way but on a larger scale like the in the like the wash basin for the tabernacle was like maybe this big but for Solomon's temple it was like 30 feet across it was just huge um, so we got this this wash basin and then we have the main tabernacle area and in front of the tabernacle there are five pillars that were uh, I think acacia wood covered in gold and then there's a curtain behind that and then inside the inside the holy place we have the the menorah, the seven candles, so the seven candlestick, and the temple, uh, the uh, the table of showbread, which they put twelve loaves of bread on, and then there was a another small altar of for incense where they burn incense, and right next to that were, were four more pillars, and the the curtain between the holy place and the most holy place. This is the one that famously tore in half when Jesus died in in uh, in the big temple and then of course we have the ark of the covenant beyond that um so looking at this you, you guys may some of you may have already jumped ahead um on some of the symbolism as, as far as the cosmos with some of this stuff if you think back to the lesson that we had a few weeks ago about ancient cosmology um and how, how the how the ancient Israelites would have viewed the the shape of the cosmos is it, as a refresher. Here's what the what it was made up of. So there's waters below, under the earth, and there are pillars on the edges of the earth to hold up a firmament above. Like a, they they thought of it as a literal solid dome up above. And then down below you have pillars of the earth holding up the earth so it didn't get all sloshy and then you have the earth on top of that and then down below you have the place of death Sheol it's where where you go to sleep when you die in, in the ground and in the sky in the sitting in the dome there were stars and the moon and the sun and then you have um, the clouds up in the sky and you have plants on the earth etc and then above the above everything you have the realm of God so this is kind of the 
the, their concept of what the universe was made up of. So if you, and, and this is also, for anybody who missed it, this is also how Genesis 1 describes the universe as well, because God was not interested in getting to the scientific details of things. So if you look at this, and you rotate it like this, and then put the other, the cosmos next to it, the, it's, it's like almost a one-to-one -one mapping of all, this, all the elements of the cosmos to what they were in the, in the tabernacle. Like the place where the things were burned when they were dead would kind of map to Sheol. You got the waters below. You have temp the pillars of the earth. And this curtain could symbolize the earth. Uh, the, the, actually, this entire holy place would symbolize the earth because even on the walls on the inside, we can't see. There were like plants and things like that uh, in gold on the walls and um, lots of nature ideas. Then you have pillars uh, holding up the firmament between God and man. And then you have the literal realm of God in the, holy, the most holy place up above. And then even the elements in the temple, in the holy place themselves, the, the stars and the sun and the moon um, were... So, some people believe that, that... And there's a lot of correlation to other cultures at the time that the five visible planets plus the sun and the moon are the seven items there. I don't know, maybe not. Um, you got the, the, the altar that puts a cloud of incense in front of the, the firmament, which, which would be the clouds in the sky. And as we talked about, the agricultural aspects of things that God provided. So even looking at this, maybe it's too many lines, I don't know. It's a little bit of conjecture here. But... Um, the, the fascinating thing to me is that, and the the three items on days one, two, and three, the the lights, the weather, and the bread are all the the three things represented in the holy place of of the tabernacle. And so, looking at other, um, looking at this, essentially, the tabernacle to them was a map of the cosmos. And what the interesting thing going on here is that it's a symbolism in both directions, really. Because the tabernacle, the temple was the map for the universe, and at the same time, the universe is itself the temple of God. And so it's a much bigger, like I said before, it's a much bigger idea than like the Egyptians who just had the temple and who, um, who thought of each temple as its own cosmos in, in its own way. But... Um, the, I think the reason that so it wasn't God, it wasn't the, the the Hebrews who said, "Can we please have a tabernacle?" It was God who said, "Make me this tabernacle." Why do you think He did that? Maybe it's a bigger question. I don't know. Well, for one thing, He told them that He would be His presence would be there. Right. It was a a way to have them focus. Yeah. Yeah. If. If the if the entire cosmos is God's temple, why does He need something on Earth? I think what it, my in my opinion, save a little time. Um, I think what it comes down to is that the people at the time needed some sort of connection to God. That was that was the closest they could get. You know, now this idea of the temple is all the way through into the New Testament. As we are, we are the temple, right? We don't have to go to a place anymore 
to to get that that closeness and that relationship with God, but um, this is the best way that God had them to keep them close to Him. And even at the time, the Israelites knew that this wasn't the whole thing. They knew that the temple that they made wasn't where God lived. Um, Solomon, when in his dedication of the temple, when he built the temple, uh, like his prayer of dedication, he said, "But will God really dwell on earth?" The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built. So they, they didn't believe, like the other cultures of the time, that we had to have this thing for God to live in. They knew that God was way bigger than that. And um, in, uh, I, I have the wrong scripture someplace. Oh, this is not First Kings 8. This is uh, Isaiah 66. Um, This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will be my resting place? Has not my hand made all these things? And and so they came into being, declares the Lord. So God God is also saying, the the universe is my temple. The the heaven is my throne. That's where my resting, resting place will be. Not on earth. So even though he had them build it so they could feel closer to him, and that wasn't that wasn't the core of the thing. They they knew there was a lot more, and so this idea of the temple runs through the entire Bible. And this is something that Jeff brings up often in, in a lot of his lessons because it, it's a it's a core theme from Genesis chapter one all the way through Revelation. And as, as Jeff has taught us in, in classes and sermons in the past. Revelation is basically a temple processional. It's a temple ceremony going through the entire thing. And that's what... So the Bible starts with a temple being constructed, essentially. And, and there's actually some evidence that this that Genesis 1 was what was read uh, annually at the temple uh, uh, dedication ceremony, as, as like on a seven-day dedication ceremony. So it started out with the dedication ceremony of a temple, the universe, and it ends... The Bible ends with the dedication ceremony of the temple as well. And um, it's the pinnacle of Solomon's reign was building this temple. Um, and there's temple imagery all throughout the Old Testament, especially Ezekiel. And uh, in the New Testament, like we said, it says that God tabernacled with us as through Jesus. He became a dwelling on the earth, and then we are the temple of God. So... All that is amazing to me how this, and this is, I've, I mentioned before, this is one of the reasons this um, interpretation of Genesis 1 just rings so true to me because seeing this as a functional creation, setting up this temple, and seeing that, that core theme throughout the entire Bible, that, that's not an accident. That, that's, that's there for a reason. And that t- tells me a lot. Um, one of the, I remember one of the things that Jeff says that the the Bible is consumed with this building. <laughs> it really is, and it's not consumed with this building because it's a bu- it's a cool building. The Bible is consumed with the temple because it is God's dwelling place, which is everything. And that that's that's just fascinating to me. So knowing all this stuff, why is day seven the most important day in this story? From a functional perspective, declares how big God is. God is. Right, declares how big and powerful God is. 
functionally, if you have a, te- have a building and there's no God in the building, is it a temple? Right, he's putting it to use. So he's, he's, he's constructed this cosmos for, for man t- to be in, to serve us in, in many ways. But on day seven, he's like saying, now I will rest here. I will take up my residence here in the world, and I'm going to start my reign, which is where we get into the Sabbath, which is what I really wanted to get to. Um, this day is the source of the reason for the Sabbath command that God gave Israel. And the important, like I said, the importance never really clicked with me until I read this and figured, it, figured out this interpretation this way. Um, because I always wonder why would God waste a day of the, or waste one of the Ten Commandments on the day to relax? So, knowing what we know about day seven and God resting on his throne in the cosmos, what does the, what do you think the purpose of the Sabbath has? Because resting had nothing to do with taking a break. It meant disengaging from one thing. And even if you look back in chapter 2, it says like three times, he said he rested from the work he was doing, not rested, period. He rested from the work he was doing, and so he rested from the work he was doing. Just kind of keep saying that. So he, it was disengagement, engaging from one thing so he could engage in another thing. And that term rest throughout, like when the Israelites found their rest in, in the promised land, that rest wasn't so they could go swing on a hammock in the promised land. It was so they could engage in the things they should do without hindrance and without problems from wandering in the desert and things like that. So with all that in mind, why do we ha- why does God command a Sabbath to the Israelites? I think it's way more than taking a break. It's it's part an aspect of a covenant established with them. What's he? What's he? What do you think he's wanting them to realize? They're to recognize their true purpose. Okay. Yeah, to give it an opportunity without distractions. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, the, to to recognize that God's with them. I think all the I think all these are are accurate. I think at the core of it, when it comes <laughs> uh, down to what to what I would, the way I would phrase it is a put, to say God is in charge, to recognize that, and all those things that you mentioned are part of that. To stop and to quit trying to do it yourself, and to acknowledge that God is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. Right. Stop what you're doing, quit trying to be the one in charge, and let God be in charge because he is in charge. And that's why day seven is the most important day and why the Sabbath is still an important thing for us today, I think. I mean, we don't have the, um, we don't follow rabbinical laws and things like that to have, like, don't work on a Saturday. I think it's one of those things that we need to be thinking of all the time. And it made me think of this Shel Silverstein poem they call it God, God's wheel. Um, it says, God says to me with kind of a smile, hey, how would you like to be God for a while and steer the world? Okay, says I, I'll give it a try. Where do I sit? How much do I get? What time is lunch? When can I quit? 
give me back that wheel, says God. I don't think you're quite ready yet. And to me, I've always loved this poem because for the obvious reasons, but now I see this kind of as a, like a proof for this is why we need the Sabbath. Because we want to try to steer the world, and we can't. There's no way we can, and we shouldn't be trying to because we just want to know when do we get to quit. Um, but this idea of Sabbath is, is so important in, in, to God that he made it one of the Ten Commandments. It's so important throughout Jewish history because what you're saying is the Sabbath equals saying God is the one who is in charge, not me. And uh, I, I love that I'm going to quote a famous preacher that some of us know. <laughs> I wrote this down in one of his sermons that he said, well, I don't know how long ago, he said, Sabbath isn't a day of the week, it's a state of the heart. I love that because that, that sums it up so much. It's not about stopping working on Saturday, don't, don't write two letters next to each other. It's about recognizing who's, who's the one in charge of your life and in charge of the universe and in charge of all things. And, uh, and so we shouldn't be taking it lightly. Are you going into Hebrews 4? Hebrews 4. Okay. I, I'll take that as a moment. <laughs> uh, so Sabbath rest is the term that's used even in the Old Testament. Yeah. Rest. So Hebrews talks about the Sabbath rest. He said, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about that day, about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And this is pretty much saying what's mm-hmm. been said. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. And so their disobedience was not listening to God, not not allowing God to rule. Yeah. He said he's going to rule. They, you you do, uh, do things outside that and causes causes chaos and every, all kinds of things. But you go into the Sabbath rest, and that the uh, this is probably from your famous preacher here. The, the eternal rest of God's people after their work in his kingdom. Uh, Jesus is our rest today if you right. hear his voice. So it's it's the same thing. It's it's allowing Jesus, depending on Jesus, not you. Right. You rest. Uh, you take the Sabbath rest in the sense that you don't worry about a stuff that's a bunch of stuff that's already been determined. Right, and, and that and Christ, Christ is our rest because he allows us to disengage. That's Shabbat, which is where Sabbath comes from, just means disengage. It means stop doing something. And Christ allows us to stop striving and working and doing what we can do and allows him to take over and be the one who takes care of it for us. Yeah, John. Yeah, I, I would say it's, it's not only recognizing God's in control, but, but also engaging with God. Yes. Because I, I do also love, like you, love that that quote there, Sabbath in the day of the week to stay apart. And, and it is, it's a state in which we engage with God every day. We, I mean, he's living in the presence of God, literally. Right, and I probably, I didn't emphasize that enough, but I didn't get into, like, the word, like, study of Shabbat and all this, all the other words that are around that. 
But when it, when when it, the the text says to disengage the the Sabbath, be, disengage from something, it doesn't mean to not do anything else. It means engage with something better, something that's more in line with your purpose, something that means something. And so, when God stopped from His work of the 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 making the stuff and making and setting up and organizing the the universe, day eight He was still doing He was doing more important stuff than He did on day six. Because that was the setting up, and now we can get to down to business. Now I'm sitting in my throne and I'm doing my work. Same thing with us. We need to allow Christ to be our Sabbath rest for us and to disengage from the strain and the stress of life and allow him to take care of those problems for us and things that we can't handle for ourselves, and we need to acknowledge that. So it wouldn't say Sabbath is kind of an invitation God's yeah. To us yeah. To with him. Right. That's a very good way to put it. <coughs> yeah, Jeff. In, the, in Zechariah, I got excited when we were talking. I was thinking about the book of Zechariah. Um, Israel was this small little pawn in the middle of all of these major empires and nations throughout the Old Testament. And at one point in Zechariah, God sends forth horses in each of the four directions. He sends out black, white, red, apple horses in each direction. And they go into the empires of the world and they come back and, and God says this, they've given my heart rest in that place. And, and what he was saying to Israel is, I'm your sovereign, but I'm sovereign over the nations as well. And when they rise up and when they think they're king and when they think they're God, they, I said my, my, I like the way you said that because it doesn't mean, hey, I'm getting tired of this. Mm-hmm. You know, no, I'm ruling over them. My rule is here. Right. Rest is here. He words it the same way as Zechariah. Yeah. Yeah, it, a study of the Sabbath, I think, I haven't had a chance to really do that much since since this, but just studying the Sabbath from this perspective of, of disengaging from what you don't want to be doing and do, engaging in something more important, looking at that throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament is really, really instructive. Because what Jesus was... was lambasted by the Pharisees for doing something on the Sabbath, he was doing something more important. He was healing a person. He wasn't just not working, which is that that's what they thought it was supposed to be. He was doing something more important, ultimately. Anyway, our time's up, but uh, thank you so much. Next week will be our last class, so uh, I hope you're not too tired of this yet. Thanks.